Hey, this is Ed Luther, pastor of City Church in Australia. I hope that today's podcast really inspires you. Thank you so much for listening. I grew up in this church. Uh, I grew up in this community. And uh, like a lot of you guys here, religious or not, um, I grew up hearing a lot of scriptures uh, a lot of times. And uh, when, whenever you hear something, you know, X amount of times, uh, what happens is called the, the fairy tale effect, the nursery rhyme effect, sorry, uh, which is it just gets desensitized. Uh, you, you start to lose the gravity of the story uh, inherently behind whatever the, the parable or the, or the, the story is. And uh, like many of you guys here, uh, even if you didn't grow up in a church setting or in a religious setting of any kind, uh, there are probably many scriptures that you've heard um, or been forced to hear uh, that have, over a period of time, uh, maybe lost their saltiness uh, in your own life. For me, uh, that scripture, uh, among many others, was Psalm 23. And uh, if you've got your Bibles... I'd just like to invite you to turn with me to Psalm 23, um, and it goes like this. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, raise your hand if you've heard that somewhere, or part of that somewhere before. Yeah, basically everybody. Um, And... Uh, this was the first scripture, actually, that I memorized as a child. My dad blackmailed me into memorizing scriptures as a kid uh, by offering me uh, sums of money, very small sums of money, one or two dollars uh, for memorizing. And this was the first one that I memorized, uh, and it's one that I've kept with me for so long, uh, but the imagery of it uh, was lost on me in, in regards to the original context and what the author was actually trying to say. I never really understood why is this one of those scriptures that we throw up constantly uh, and and talk about. I can understand some of the cliche scriptures that we that we uh, are constantly hearing, like John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I understand that. Although we hear it all the time, I understand. Wow, that is a powerful statement. Uh, Psalm 23 uh, was one of those ones where I was like, I don't know any shepherds. I don't think I've ever met a shepherd in my life. I don't understand really any of the context growing up uh, about what any of this, this meant. And then alongside that, the, the, the older I got, uh, the more I started applying this in my own world in, in different ways. Um, and consequently, uh, the sharp edges of this powerful scripture has been blunted uh, by familiarity. 
like a lot of other things. Um, and I personally had my own narrative in my head as to what this all meant. Um, you know, obviously, the shepherd is guiding me. I'm a sheep. He's guiding me. He's, he's taking me into the valley. Uh, and it's dark and it's scary. And he's protecting me with his rod, which in my head was a useless way to protect anything. And, uh, and then on the other side of the valley, there's like some kind of big revenge dinner that I get to have with all this food and all my enemies, all the people who have ever wronged me, all the people who have ever cut me off in traffic. They're all outside in the cold. And I'm gorging myself in this beautiful meal, right? And uh, I love a good revenge story. Uh, like most people in the West do. I think we're so privileged as a culture now that we have to create our own drama to, to try and like feel something again. And so we, we tend to gravitate towards revenge stories. We, uh, we were watching uh, Taken last night. We got home from Slade's wedding in Sydney. Taken was on TV. That is just such a classic, such a good movie. And uh, it's just one of those movies, so satisfying in every way. There's so many of those kind of movies that aren't really satisfying because maybe, you know, the good, the, the good guy f- ends up forgiving the bad guy in the end and, you know, turns him around and all of that. Nah, not Liam Neeson. He's, he's out to kill every person in, in Paris. <laughs> They're all dead. And, and he gets his daughter back, and it's so satisfying. We all love a good revenge story, which is why the end of that scripture was, was something I, I, I got a lot of pleasure in uh, reading. You know, I'd, I'd read it and be like, yes, Lord, I, I received that, that, that dinner in the face of my enemies. But it's not actually what the author is saying. Because, see, the whole psalm actually revolves not around the imagery of us, but around the imagery of the shepherd. And while the first half of the psalm is all about us as sheep, uh, you know, following the shepherd, uh, being protected by this shepherd, the second half of the, of the psalm, verses 5 and 6 specifically, exchanges the imagery uh, of sheep for the imagery of a fugitive. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies is actually the imagery that the author here is trying to to give to us is not the imagery of some kind of hero uh, who has a lot of villains, but actually the imagery of a fugitive on the run. And uh, basically, in, in the ancient desert culture, if a man was found guilty of committing a crime, usually murder, then he would end up being exiled to the desert or on the run in the desert. He would, he would try and find refuge in the desert and something called desert law would go into, it, into effect. When, when the time of this psalm was written, there was something called desert law and it was the law of blood revenge. It meant that you were on the run and people were on the hunt for you and they were allowed to kill you. It was a free-for-all. 
And if you, any of you guys uh, grew up, when I grew up, there used to be a game called RuneScape that we, we all used to play. Oh, I'm so glad some of you guys played that. That was, I was, <laughs> that was about to go real downhill real quickly if no one has ever played that. Um, but basically, RuneScape, uh, for those of you who have never played it, uh, you know, it all revolves around uh, existing in this certain realm. It's an ancient realm of some kinds. And then in the game, if you go out into the wilderness... Uh, which is outside the city uh, gates, the people who built the, the game basically uh, took all limits off of what could happen out there in terms of the rules of the game. If you were in the safety of the city, you couldn't just walk up to someone and kill them in the game. But if you were in the wilderness, you could get robbed, you could get killed. And it was similar in desert law. Um, the desert was the home of the fugitive, and it was a horrible home. It was filled with fear. It was filled with murder. It was filled with crime. But there was one massive exception to this fear revolving the desert or the wilderness that the fugitive would encounter. And that exception was that this was also where the shepherd lived. In the desert, there was a custom called Open Hospitality. And this is still actually a custom that is uh, around today in, uh, in certain cultures uh, in the Middle East. And Open Hospitality uh, involved almost exactly what, you, what it sounds like. It basically, every wanderer in the desert Whatever his or her character, whatever his or her iniquities, whatever they had committed was received into the shepherd's tent as a guest of God. And that's the Arabic term for it that's, uh, that's used, a guest of God. And in this process, the shepherd would actually take responsibility for the safety of this fugitive. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. This is the fugitive speaking in the scripture. Threatened by their past, they're welcomed into the shepherd's tent. And there, in the presence of their enemies, they're given a meal. So this isn't about revenge on your enemies, but in fact, this is about refuge from your mistakes. There's a big difference there. And as always, this is less about how bad everyone else is and about how good God is. There's a big difference there as well. Now, Jesus was famous for stirring controversy while he was on the earth. And uh, one of the most famous times that he uh, ended up stirring the rage of the political elite of the time was when he quoted uh, a scripture, John 10, uh, John 10, 11, I believe it is. Uh, and he quotes Psalm 23. It doesn't say that explicitly in your Bible unless you look at the footnotes. But uh, he quotes directly Psalm 23, and he says, I am the good shepherd. And a lot of times we miss that. 
uh, because, you know, we're reading through it. We're not quite getting the analogies and the, the parables that are being spoken. So we hear shepherd again. We're like, I don't, know, I don't know what that is. I've never seen a shepherd. And uh, we move on. Uh, but what he's doing there is actually massive. When you realize that, you start to understand why the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, the religious leaders of the time were so outraged. They'd grown up reading these stories, memorizing these stories and these psalms and these scriptures and these holy sacred texts. And then this guy shows up on the scene and says, I'm that guy, actually. I'm the guy that they're talking about back there. He says, I'm the good shepherd. And then uh, in Matthew 9, verse 9, we, uh, we come to the theme of tonight's message. And if you're taking notes, the title of my message tonight is called The Undesirables, A Family of Fugitives. Matthew 9, 9 is where I want to kick off tonight. And uh, Matthew was written by a guy named Matthew, and we know Matthew uh, as, you know, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And like all of his disciples, I think we read the scriptures and we see them all as very holy men, and uh, we, we perhaps skim over their origin stories individually and the importance of uh, who they were and why Jesus chose them. Uh, but I love Matthew's origin story here uh, because it shows in great detail who Jesus is and who he's choosing to be a part of his community and how we are supposed to approach community as we bring God's kingdom to earth. And Matthew comes on the scene uh, in the ninth chapter of his own book here. Uh, And I'm going to read in the NIV here, Matthew 9, verse 9 to 10. As Jesus left Capernaum, he came upon a tax collecting station where a a traitorous, oh, sorry, this is, yeah, (laughs) sorry, that was in the, uh, the passion, which we'll get to. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So that's what it says in the NIV. I want to read to you real quick in the Passion Translation because it gets us a little bit closer to what's really going on here. Uh, and the importance of it. As Jesus left Capernaum, he came upon a tax collecting station where a treacherous Jew was busy at his work collecting taxes for the Romans. His name was Matthew. Now, right there, we get a bit of a clearer image of what's going on here. Because when we read it, usually, we see something that's not very common here. We don't have tax collecting booths. We pay our taxes uh, online or we go to a, uh, a tax office or, or an accountant. Uh, and we don't ever see Matthew as a, as, a, as a trader collecting taxes for the Romans. And this is very, very important because what... What's actually happening here, the Roman Empire was actually a very, very well-run empire for a long time. And the reason it lasted so long was because they were very good at not only conquering nations, but then also containing those nations, 
not necessarily in slavery like, like previous empires had done, but containing them in complacency and in, uh, under their comfort and their systems. And the way that they would do this was instead of putting them in provinces and having them come to Roman officials and pay their debts and taxes to Romans, uh, what they would do was they would take people from their own community and pay them a lot of money to be their representatives so that that nation felt a little bit more like, oh, I'm giving it to my own people. Matthew was one of those guys. And the way that the tax collecting system was set up with these nations uh, was very similar to the way that the mafia is set up. Matthew was a friend of the family. He was getting money from the enemy, essentially. This, this, this Roman Empire that the Jews at the time believed were their oppressors and were the enemy of God, and that their Messiah is going to come one day and free them and overthrow this oppressive force. That's what they believed. So Matthew represented everything that was wrong with their culture at the time. And Jesus was this Messiah, was claiming to be this Messiah that they had read about their entire lives. And it kind of goes even darker with the way this was all set up. The context at which Jesus is arriving, he's showing up to the tax booth and he's talking to this guy that is just despised by everyone around him. His community, his Jewish brethren would have hated him so much because the coins that they had to bring to him to pay their taxes, they were Roman coins. And I wish I had a photo or I would throw it up there, but you can go and Google this. The Roman coins that they used to pay with, on one side of the coin, it had Caesar's face. Just like on our coins, it has the queen's face on the back. Their coin had Caesar's face imprinted on the back. On the other side of the coin, it had the image of a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion, with his, with his boot on the head of a Jewish man. And this was the money that they would bring to this Jewish guy to pay. And on top of that, as a tax collector, his job wasn't just the middleman between him and the Romans. He actually had a bit of authority. What the Romans would do to kind of entice these people to join them and help them oppress these nations was they would give them the power to choose how much tax was being taxed and to who they were doing it to. So if Matthew saw a bunch of fishermen coming their way with, with a fresh load of fish and a bunch of money that they'd made on their, on their catch, he was able to go, oh, I'm going to charge them this amount. So chances are everyone knew who this guy was and what a dirtbag he was in their eyes. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And he walks right up to him and says, come follow me. 
And then Matthew gets up and follows him. And then Jesus goes over to Matthew's house and has a little dinner party. And at this dinner party, it's not just Matthew, but it's all of his friends. It says here, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, the Pharisees, they came to the dinner party as well, it says. Well, I don't know if they were invited, but they, they were there. And they stood outside or on the outside of the room or something. And they're sort of giving commentary about it. And uh, I won't read the whole thing. But basically, they start talking to Jesus' disciples. And they're like, what on earth is going on here? Why is he eating with these guys? Why is he talking to them? Why is he being friendly with these guys? Didn't he, didn't he say he was the Messiah? Isn't he supposed to come in here and destroy this establishment? Not start dining with them. And Jesus overhears it and says something very powerful. He says, I didn't come to save the righteous, but I, I came here to, to save sinners. The, 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 the healthy don't need a hospital. The sick need a hospital. So I don't, I'm, not, I'm not here for you if you think you're good enough. Because you're not. No one is. But what he was trying to, what he was trying to show them was that he, he's going to eat with all of these people, and that's not a reflection of his acceptance of their way of life. His tolerance, his acceptance of them was not a reflection of, of him encouraging their way of life, but his proximity to them was intentional. See, the religious... Relate at this point, the religious elite are offended, uh, not just at who Jesus is claiming to be, but at the kind of community that he's creating at this point. Because he's telling everyone that the kingdom of God is here and that he's not only the messenger of the kingdom of God, but that he's the king in that kingdom. So they're mad about that already. They're already heated at this point. We're nine chapters in. He's made a lot of enemies at this point. Now they're just as offended over who he's inviting to be a part of this kingdom. Because in their eyes, he's inviting the wrong people. They've spent their entire lives doing backflips down the road to escape from adultery and praying out loud in the streets to show how holy they are. And here Jesus is inviting tax collectors over for dinner, inviting the mafia over for dinner. And the people who heard him say that he's a good shepherd knew the reality of a shepherd's life. Because being a good shepherd meant taking on the risk of the murderers and the robbers and the fugitives that are on the run in the desert. Jesus is saying something very profound here about who he is and exactly how he intended to live. And he did. He, he lived this way. You can see it right here with Matthew. He invited everybody to come eat at his table because already 
at this point, if we skip ahead to Matthew chapter 10, it goes through a list of names of, of, of the disciples that he's chosen. And this is another part I used to always skip over. Anytime there's names or genealogies in the Bible, I don't have time for it. I'm looking for the tweetable, you know, encouragement for my, for my daily devotions. Uh, and, and so that kind of stuff usually would bore me. But as I was reading it after, after this whole story, it goes into, you know, all these people he's chosen. And once again, it's profound when you see it. Because you've got Matthew, the tax, tax collector. Then you've got Simon, the zealot. Now, a zealot, a tax collector, is basically like having a police officer and a, and a mafia hitman. <laughs> These guys are not friends in the real world. And then right after that, you got Judas. <laughs> I don't need to tell you about him. <laughs> Jesus knew he was going to betray him. These are the guys Jesus is bringing in. He didn't choose 12 tax collectors or 12 zealots. He was showing them that his kingdom is not about uniformity. It's about unity. Because the disciples' differences, and they had a lot of differences. I feel like, even though it's not necessarily written in the scripture, I feel like a lot of Jesus's time spent with these guys was probably a lot of guys shut up. <laughs> it wasn't about uniformity here. It wasn't about them all wearing the same clothes and all saying the same prayers and doing the same rituals. It was all about unity and proximity to him. Their differences paled in comparison to their unity in following Jesus. And he goes on to tell these religious elite at that same dinner where they're like, why are you eating with these guys? He goes on to say, not only should we be eating with these guys, but we should be celebrating it. We should be celebrating these differences. We shouldn't be mourning. Now for the sheep... In danger in the valley, the shepherd is a guide. For the fugitive pursued by death, the shepherd is a protector and a host. For both the sheep and the fugitive, however, the shepherd provides the conditions for living in the desert. The shepherd plays a few different roles. Now, maybe you feel like you don't fit in. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up as we close. Maybe you feel like you're a fugitive in your own life. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you feel like you're on the run. Like your past can never Escape, you can never escape that. Or on the flip side, maybe you're like me and you got past that point and you, you embraced the fugitive life. Because for me, the illusion of the desert was a life of freedom. The illusion that the world had to offer, the illusion 
of the life of the fugitive, the lie, the lie that I had been sold was that this is a life of freedom, a life of life on my own, on my own terms. Life where anything goes in the desert. And living life on your own terms, living, living in the wilderness and this in the so-called freedoms of the desert, running from your past, or worse, running from your destiny. I think a lot of times we're out in the desert thinking we're living in this freedom of of unimaginable possibilities because we're running from our past and we're never going back there. They can't get us. But what we're really doing is, is running from our destiny, what God has called us to be. And we're living in a, in a, in a wilderness, a limbo. Maybe some of you have taken the road of the the religious elite, and committed to a life of conformity, a life of trying to fit in. But let me tell you something. You were never called to fit in, so stop trying. It's not something Jesus ever asked. We can see it right here. You don't have to look past this story to see that the guys Jesus is calling, like Matthew, calls him by name, come follow me and invite all your friends. Where's the fitting in there? If Jesus was trying to fit in, he would have been hanging out with the religious leaders. Or he would have been telling the religious leaders, oh, don't worry, guys, I'm just trying to get them to obey the law of Moses. We're going to get them sorted. I'm going to get them through the seven-day purification process. We're going to make sure everything's good. But he doesn't do that. He eats with them. But accepting the open invitation to dine with the one who created you brings a life of freedom in who you were created to be. See, Jesus doesn't want you to try and conform to some box. He doesn't... He's not waiting for you in the desert so he can invite you back to his home and then take you back to the city where you can be put on trial for your iniquities. That's not what he does. When God created us all equal, I mean all all in his image, yes, but all unique, beautifully, fearfully, wonderfully made, when he did that, it wasn't so that we could all be the same person. It was so that we could be exactly who we were meant to be, and that looks different for everyone. And when you dine with the Creator, you get to live as the best version of yourself alongside a diverse community, as you can see just even in this church, of people committed to being the best versions of themselves as well and people committed to holding you to being the best version of yourself. Jesus doesn't want you to conform, but he doesn't want you running around in the desert afraid of your past. See, that's what the devil wants. 
I see two images here in Psalm 23 and in Matthew 9. The fugitive, that's definitely a place that the devil wants to get you in, if he can. If he can get you out in the desert, on the run from your destiny, on the run from your past, then you're no danger to him. No one can find you, not the, not the people who are trying to get revenge on you and not the people who are trying to help you. But then in Matthew 9, I see another thing that the devil wants to get us in, another situation. And that is exactly where the religious Jewish elite were at at the time, which was a, a state of containment, a state of complacency and comfort. If the devil can't kill you, then he's going to choose the next best thing, which is he's going to contain you in a system, in a, in a state of life where you don't have time to help anyone. You're too busy judging people or trying to keep up with your systems and your rituals and trying to, trying to forgive yourself of your own sins and trying to clean yourself and, and, and strive for your own righteousness trying to clean your own garments and, and purify your own soul. That's equally as satisfying to the devil. The last thing he wants you to do is get together with a, with a bunch of other imperfect people, broken people, and have dinner with Jesus. That's the last thing he wants. The last thing he wants is for all of the king's children to come home tattered and maimed and be told their true de destiny and true identity and be given armor and a sword. That's the last thing he wants. He wants you out in the desert or he wants you confiding in the enemy and staying contained in a system of oppression. That's what he wants. Maybe you're here tonight and you feel like, man, Mitch, I've been on the run. I've been just trying to avoid community. I've been... Lying awake at night, asking the hard questions. Is there a God? Does he love me? Does he know who I am? Or is he some just ethereal, bearded puppet master out in the cosmos throwing lightning bolts at people? Maybe you've been struggling with your place in the world not being able to fit in and wondering why you don't fit in. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? Why can't I just fit into this culture or this community? Or maybe you've just been on the run for a long time, asking if there's anyone out there who understands your situation. Let me tell you, there is a shepherd in the desert and he has sent a messenger to invite you to come dine with him in the presence of your enemies, in the presence of your failures, in the presence of everything you think is unforgivable. Not so you can sit there and boast and brag about it, but so you can sit there in safety and refuge from your failures, from your iniquities 
there is a good father who made you and knows you by name and created you for a specific and powerful and dangerous purpose. And it's not too late. The desert law still stands. And there is an open house waiting. And there is a loving, smiling Father and a Savior named Jesus who's sitting at the table with a hot meal waiting for you to come sit with Him. If you're here tonight and you're wondering where your place is, it's at the table with Jesus. There's a seat at the table for you. Jesus didn't have a seat for the people who thought they were too good for for it. He didn't have a place at the table for the people who were who thought they were good enough to get into heaven by their by their own right, by their own strength. But he did have a place at the table for everybody else. Didn't matter who they were. Didn't matter if they were Roman or a Jew, a tax collector, a prostitute. Didn't matter if they were black or white. Didn't matter what they'd done, where they'd come from. And it didn't matter whether they were going to be perfect from that point onwards. What mattered was his proximity to them. And we get the choice. Are we going to be like Judas, who despite his proximity to Jesus, was still about as far away from him as you could get? Despite being in Jesus' embrace for three years, still didn't know who he was. Or are we going to be like Matthew, who despite understanding how bad he was as a person and how much he had betrayed his own culture and his own people, was so willing to drop it all and leave. He left his post. He left his job. He left his career right there and then. There was no question. It doesn't matter what translation of the Bible you read. There's no translation that says, and then he told Jesus he would be off at 5.30. He'd go home and then he'd pack his bag and then he'd, no. He just got up and followed Jesus. He was waiting. That's what we should be like. But the wait is over. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you're here tonight, maybe you feel like you're far away from him. Maybe you feel like you've been wandering around for too long. Or maybe you feel like you've been so close to him in, in, in proximity, but haven't actually been close to him relationally. There's a seat at the table for you. So we're going to pray this prayer, and I'm going to ask everyone to pray after me. Jesus, thank you for seeing me in all my imperfections, in all my failures, in all my faults. Thank you for choosing me Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for inviting me to eat at your table. 
Thank you for being the good shepherd, for protecting me and for feeding me. Jesus, I invite you into my heart. I choose to follow you despite my imperfections, despite my lack of strength. I choose your strength. I choose your righteousness. I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the City Church Podcast. If you enjoyed this message or God worked through you in any way, then please take a moment to contact us through our website at city-church.net or email us your feedback at info at city-church.net.